All right, well, as Marty mentioned, this is the, <clears throat> the platform where um, folks send me questions ahead of time, and, um, and I try to answer them. And I've done it a couple of times. It's always fun to, to work on the answers, but even more fun is to figure out what the questions are, you know, what you all are thinking about. And you are thinking about a lot of things, as it turns out. I got a lot of really juicy questions this time, so I hope that we all have like an hour and a half um, together to get through that. I think that'll be enough time, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, and lest you worry that I not have the right answers, I want to remind you that at West we all discover the answers together. And I found this great quote, um, which, which felt like it um, kind of let me off the hook for the day. Your mind will answer most questions if you learn to relax. That's from William S. Burroughs. So, um, so everybody just relax, and then it doesn't matter if you even like nod off during what I'm saying, because your mind will provide all the answers you need. There were a couple of categories this time, and so I've tried to lump our questions together, and we'll kind of go back and forth between some big philosophical questions, some questions that were about Wes and how Wes works, and then back again as we kind of go through these, um, these different options. If a classic question, which I didn't get this time, is why bad things happen to good people. Of course, you all, oh, like, like to that, why did something bad just happen to that little, that little good child? Um, uh, why bad things happen to good people. There's a whole book written about that. I didn't get that question, but I got instead a question about how to talk, actually how to talk to children about bad things happening uh, really at all. And the question was framed around um, the, the questioner's desire to, or need, really, to talk to their child about some really awful things that had happened in the child's kind of immediate circle. So the school that the child went to, there was a teacher who had been convicted of sexually abusing children. And so she needed to be able to share with her older child what was going on. And then just in general, kind of explaining danger and caution in the world, the way we need to take care and take care of ourselves and be cautious in our environments, and how to do that without kind of putting up this huge shield. And, and I loved the way, she, the way she spoke about this. She said, particularly as I watch my own son notice difference, right? And we know that children begin to notice difference from a very early age, just differences in people, how we look, how we dress, the color of our skin, you know, all of those things, children pick up at a very early age those differences. As I watch my own son notice difference and think, and she's, she's hooking into a, an evolutionary tactic, right, that, that, that difference equals danger. So how, when I notice my son picking up on those things, how do I make sure that I, that I tell him appropriately about the dangers in the world without letting him think that difference equals danger, with, without letting him think that that's true. I loved the way that she, um, that she phrased that. It was so thoughtful as she's thinking about how to talk to her son about what's going on in the world. My favorite answer to how to talk to kids about dangerous things in the world without making them totally uh, fearful actually comes from uh, the Berenstein Bears. How many of you read the Berenstein Bears? either to yourselves, to your children. Yes, okay. So the Berenstein Bears um, was actually not very popular in my home because the father, the Berenstein, father of the Berenstein Bears is like a total dope, you know? He never knows what's going on. And so I'm not sure my father really appreciated that, that series. However, um, 
they had a great series of books about sort of how to talk to kids about a variety of things and how to deal with different issues. And I remember so clearly the Berenstein Bears and, um, and Bad Apples. Does anyone know this particular book? So Sister Bear is, um, is talking to strangers and running all around, and Brother Bear is trying to convince her to be more cautious, and there are dangerous people out there, and it's really scary, and, you know, you should beware. And then Sister Bear gets very fearful and doesn't want to talk to anybody, including, you know, like the butterflies and so there's a whole thing. And Mother Bear, obviously, and Father Bear does something sort of stupid. And Mother Bear comes in to save the day. And so Mother Bear has a big bushel of apples. And, um, and she takes out some apples, and she cuts one, and it's a beautiful apple inside. And then she cuts another, which looks great. And, uh, and inside, it's wormy. You know, it wouldn't be an apple you'd want to eat. And then she has an apple that's kind of misshapen, and she cuts that one, and it's perfect inside. It just, you know, looks a little funny, but it tastes delicious. And so she talks to Sister Bear and Brother Bear about the fact that there are, you know, there's all kinds of apples and all kinds of people out there. You can't tell by looking at them what they're like inside. But you do need to know that there are a couple of bad apples in the bushel, that that happens every once in a while, but that it, you don't want to stop eating apples because of that. You don't want to stop interacting with and loving the world either, right? And so she talks about sort of being careful about the apples, being cautious, checking before you take a bite, but knowing that it's only a few apples in the whole bushel. So that's one of my favorite sort of easy metaphors to talk about kind of how there are bad people out there. I think the challenge for ethical culturists, and maybe also for bears, I don't, I don't know that culture as well, um, but the challenge is how to talk about that and maintain the idea of inherent worth and inherent dignity, right? So it almost becomes the apple is fine, but it's like made some bad choices along the way, you know? <laughs> the apple has allowed itself to become infected with a worm or whatever. And so, you know, we talk to our children and frankly to ourselves as adults about the way that people who have deep inherent worth can make choices for which they're held accountable and about which we need to be cautious and aware but that still those folks are redeemable, that they continue to hold worth within them, and that our response as a community is a holding accountable and then a seek to repair, a, a search for reparation, right, rather than tossing the apple out of the bushel entirely. So I think that's a piece. And as I said, I loved the way she articulated this question being related to her child noticing difference. And, um, and I think the apple, the apple story speaks to that a little bit, but, but there's a broader question, I think, about how we talk to our children about difference, right from when they're very young to older. And I think, um, I think it's so tempting to try to gloss over it, to think that if you talk too much or if you focus on difference, the differences that children see, you know, you're going to make them more aware of it. And so you should just, you know, say everybody's the same and it's perfect. And the reality is children as early as two are noticing differences and they're getting messages about what those differences mean from society. And so much more important sort of what all of the studies are showing is that it's important to actually actively talk to your children about difference. You are not going to be the one that, that, that points out to them that there's difference in the world. They're already noticing, you know. And so being able to engage them in that conversation, talk about difference, talk about what they might be wondering about that difference, and then begin to counteract the messages that they're receiving from society. There are some great resources on that as well, but I think one of the most important things is to talk about it. I heard a, uh, or read a great chapter that said, you know, progressive parents tend to talk about um, gender. <laughs> We're trying a new candle. I'm so sorry. I just see that ours has gone out. I think we need to work on that a little bit. Um, 
that, par- that progressive parents are very comfortable talking about gender with their children, you know, saying, well, women can be bus drivers, but they are uh, cautious talking about race with their children, white progressive parents, this is talking about particularly, and how you need to talk about them just the same. You know, be as proactive talking about race, even though it's often a less comfortable issue for us as adults. So some of that is our own work preparing ourselves to talk to our children. So just, I think that's one of my answers is to talk about it, to be really open and ask questions about what your children are wondering and address it kind of head on as they're, um, as they're interacting with the world around them. And there's an example in another question that I received, actually, um, of the kind of current events that one could use to talk about difference and danger and the difference between difference and danger, the way that they're not the same. I got a question about stop and frisk policy, which has been in the news a lot recently, I'm sure you've seen, um, particularly because of a decision in New York State. Um, And the, the question asked, you know, how it was really about how do you talk to folks who feel that the stop and frisk policy is... Um, is a a good crime deterrent. Statistically, it doesn't seem to be, right? Um, But data doesn't usually convince people at at all, actually. Um, And so talking about it from a data perspective may or may not be convincing. It's something you can share, but it's not always a good opening for a conversation with someone who really has a different opinion. And so the person who wrote this question... you know, doesn't support the stop and frisk policy and is wondering how do you talk about that with folks who think that it's about making our community safer. And um, I actually talked to my five-year-old about stop and frisk yesterday. We were at the march and um, went past a a rally, a sort of sub-rally about racial profiling. And I I feel like it went okay. It's a little hard to get down to a five-year-old level. But again, you know, sort of the importance of talking about it with our children, with ourselves, uh, with each other. Um, And for me, I think what it comes down to is even if there were a a slight statistical improvement in crime, or certainly if we think it makes us safer, the trade-off for me is not worth it when it it makes a whole community of people more susceptible, separated apart, and more susceptible to police intervention. And all of the studies, again, data doesn't always convince, but all of the studies show that it is huge, overwhelmingly people of color who are stopped at stop and frisk points or in stop and frisk neighborhoods. Um, and so for me, the trade-off's not worth it. You know, um, I, don't think there, I don't think it makes us much safer. I don't think it makes us any safer. But, but even if it made us a tiny bit safer in a community, I think what it does to our society as a whole to single people out in that way and to say that that difference does equal danger to me, that's not worth the trade-off. I'd rather take the society that doesn't section people off in that way. So, so for me, that's sort of the deeper philosophical answer behind the statistical question about whether it really makes us any safer. There was actually a great piece on the stop and frisk on The Daily Show. I'm not sure if any of you saw that. Well, there were a couple of them. There was a really good, um, Jessica, one of the correspondents, did a really good um, Uh, piece on the stop and frisk policy coming to the financial district um, where, you know, she just, she was sorry, but, you know, it wasn't racial profiling. It's just that most people who committed white-collar crime, you know, looked a certain way um, in suits and the whole thing. It was really, it was 
fabulous. Um, but they did another piece, which of course was silly and funny because it's the Daily Show, but it was also had a, a poignancy and a reality to it. They did a piece with a panel of white folks and a panel of African-American folks talking about their, um, their thoughts on the stop and frisk policy and on racism in America more broadly and, um, and highlighted the very different experiences. Um, everybody, there were five or six folks in the panel, all of the African-Americans had had an experience of being stopped and frisked in New York, except one who had moved to New York a week earlier. So, uh, and on the white panel, of course, nobody had, one woman said she had, but it turned out she meant at the airport. She was screened. So I'm not sure that counts. So it was funny, you know, the Daily Show is funny, but it also pointed, I think, to such a reality in America, very different experiences of the same America. And and to me, any policy, any practice that adds to those different experiences is just philosophically wrong, statistics aside. So that would be part of what I would want to talk about with somebody um, as they looked at that. Moving from the philosophical to the sort of Wes-related, there was a great question about, um, about Wes's emphasis on families with young children, this, which this person felt that Wes had, which I think is, I'm glad they think that. Um, and, um, and then talking about how the D.C. metro area has lots of folks who are single, who live alone. It actually, maybe only at Wes would a question, you know, sort of a question to the pastor include a um, link to the Census Bureau statistics. <laughs> It was fabulous. <laughs> so, um, uh, more than, there are 2 million households in the greater D.C. metro area, more than 500,000 are single person. And then, and then she clarified for me, that's just over 27%. So, so it's great, right? Absolutely. And she's asking sort of what does Wes offer for folks who are single or who live alone? And actually, right embedded in her question, I think, is a lot of the answer. She said, you know, people who live alone, by definition, must look outside their homes for their social connections, and so West seems like an ideal community. And of course, I think that that's right. It made me think, though, as I was, I was looking at the first part of the question about Wes's emphasis on families with young children, and we have done a particular outreach in the last uh, year or two um, focusing on sort of on how our programming welcomes families with young children. But what I realized as I was trying to answer the question was that more important to me than that families with young children be welcomed here, that there be programming for them, was the idea that we created a community where there was an opportunity for multi-generational mixing and relationships, right? So as the parent of a young child myself, there's lots of places I can go with my three-year-old, you know, and be with other parents of three-year-olds. We can all be parents of three-year-olds together. We all look a little bit tired and, um, you know, run around after our kids. There are very few places that I can go where I can see my child have an interaction with a 60-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 40-year-old, all in the same 10-minute span to build those relationships. And so that's, for me, I just was reflecting on how that feels like the, the deeper call for our community you know, in some ways, to be a place where all of those folks are welcome. And so, and I, and I think that that's the case for folks who are single as well, to come, you know, with whatever identities we bring with us, to come and be in a community with people who have other different identities, whether it's age or whether you live alone or not, or whether you, you know, sort of racial or ethnic identity, all of those pieces so that we can come to a place where we get to have real relationships 
with folks who are different than we are. So I think that's one of the things that West brings broadly, I hope, to all of us and, um, and hopes to bring even more broadly to all of us. Thinking specifically about folks who are single or who live alone, I think, you know, for me, the answer really does come in that sort of um, searching for community, which many of us are. You know, so many of us are far away from our families these days. Um, and, um, and so finding a community that goes through life with you, that's there with you during challenging times, that celebrates with you, that marks the year. I think those things appeal to all West members, but I imagine that they hold a particular place for folks who are single and perhaps don't have family nearby, um, looking for that kind of community to kind of walk with you through life. Um, and then, you know, there are folks that I, there are, there are opportunities, I think, for single people particularly, many of you remember the West Singles Group that was kind of back in the day and how big and, and exciting and fun that was in the, I think it was in the 80s, right, and into the early 90s that the West Singles Group was. And we've talked about having that before. I think if folks are interested in that, you should talk to Mary, talk to me, and, and we'll see if we can figure something out there. But I think in many ways it's the times that we come together as a community that um, that are most exciting to me. So I was, that's, that, that's what I was thinking about when answering that question. The second question about Wes that I got was about Wes's growth. What are the, the positive attributes, attribute, attributes we have contributing to it, the barriers, and what can members do to accelerate the process responsibly? I loved that last part. What can members do to help out? First of all, I know that you all have heard from both Mary and from me about a thousand times there's no magic bullet to growth, right? If there were, then we wouldn't need growth consultants and books about growth and all of that. We just need one book about growth, I guess, and we'd do that thing. But I think there's so much at West that really, um, that, that, that is about sort of what our community means to us and what it has come to be, our proud tradition of social justice work, our celebratory spirit. It's, it's fun to be here. It's, it's good to be together on a Sunday. And then, of course, all of the people who are here. And I think back to that idea of sort of the identities being welcomed and honored, breaking down barriers, and, and building real relationships with people who are different than we are. I think that's something that folks are really looking for in America right now. And that's something that I think West offers and continues to build and grow. And so that, to me, is one of the things that makes this place so particular and so special. And then I think doing that all within a particular philosophical and religious context, that's hard to find other places. I don't know how many times Mary and I have heard from newcomers, you know, well, I didn't think there would be any religious community for me. You know, I loved that growing up, but then I just didn't think that that would be available to me now as an adult, believing what I believe, and all of a sudden I found Wes. And so knowing that that experience is so salient and so real for people, so true for people, I think that that's this, this huge piece that we bring to the community around us. I'm thinking about some of the challenges, you know, I think, I think growth brings change. It brings difference, right? It brings new people, uh, new ideas, and just difference on Sunday morning. And so I think sometimes the question is, you know, we want to grow, and yet we need to figure out kind of what's the change that we'll, that we'll tolerate, that we'll enjoy. You know, what happens if I come in on Sunday morning and I only recognize half the people now, you know? What if we grow so much we go to two services and then I have to pick which one I go to? Do I go to platform at 9? Do I go to platform at 11? You know, what happens then? 
do we, can we tolerate that kind of change? What other changes do we tolerate or celebrate or enjoy? I think those are some of the questions, some of the challenges, how we're willing as a community to stretch. And then I think it's a busy marketplace out there. So part of it is making sure that we kind of get folks' attention, that we welcome them in. And, and when, when you get to the part of the question about sort of what members can do, that's a drumbeat that I know you've heard from Mary over and over again, and I will just sound it myself too, to bring your friends, to tell them what it is that you love here, to welcome them, to invite them to a specific event with you. And then when they're here, to make room for them. To make room literally, you know, don't put your purse on the chair next to you, but to make room figuratively as well, to invite them for lunch, not just say hi at coffee hour, invite them onto your team, into positions of leadership. All of those pieces, I think, are part of what all of us can do um, to welcome more folks into our community. Okay, so congregational growth, very tricky, very challenging to do. So we'll talk about something easier with our next question Although, unfortunately, the next question is actually about genocide. There's always one. <laughs> there's always one. <coughs> because I think, and actually there's three, um, because I think it speaks to the, to the sort of depths of our, our fear about humanity, right? In a community like this, we, we often speak both to the highest of humanity, what we're most hopeful for about humanity, and what we're most fearful of about humanity. And so, um, so there was a great question, actually, um, specifically about the phrase, never again. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with that phrase, never again. It comes, right, yeah, Nora works at the Holocaust Museum, so she's familiar with the phrase, never again. And it's used in, in and so does Josh. So, okay, so, um, so it's used in connection often with with the Holocaust, and, and it's a rallying cry in many ways for the, for the outreach work that they do, for the work that they do looking forward in other countries trying to stop or halt or slow or lessen genocides in other countries. Well, what this questioner said is essentially, but there are still genocides. You know, it still happens. It's not never again. And so what does that phrase really mean? What, when we say never again, what can we possibly mean by it? You know, what... How can, it, how can it hold something real and something true? And whom is it for? Is it for the perpetrators? Are we saying to them, never again, don't do it again? Is it for the victims? Or is it for the bystanders? I, I loved the, that part of the question because for me, I think the phrase really is for the bystanders. I think about the fact that we talk about impersonal bullying when we teach our children in Sunday school. We talk about... Um, that the, the most powerful person in a bullying situation is the bystander, is the one who's not the victim, not the perpetrator, but watching. They have the ability to change the situation. And so when I think about that cry of never again, I think it's for the bystanders, it's for all of us. It's for those of us who are watching to say we're watching and we, and we won't let it happen again. And of course, at the same time, it, it's true, it, it does happen again. Right? You know, terrible things continue to happen. Genocides continue to happen. And so then I think it becomes about noticing it, calling it out, about living into the possibility that there will be a never again moment, that one day we will truly be able to say never again and mean it, and that until then we have to just keep saying it and working so that it's ultimately true. There's an element, I think, of faith there you know, really at the heart of that phrase. Um, faith and then, and then work that goes with that faith 
to make that faith real in the world. Similarly, I I got a great question from a first-time visitor. They're here for the first time today and sent a question in preparation, which I love. I think that you have found the right place and will fit right in. (laughs) And this, this question was about whether there would be a time in evolution when humans will give up their sort of territorial warlike states um, and accept diversity as a, as a positive celebratory thing. It's a great question, and it really speaks to that never again question, right? Will we ever get to never again? You know, um, it, it made me think of Steven Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, which is 4,000 million pages long, so I haven't read it, but smart people have read it and told me about it, which is almost the same. <laughs> And, um, and it's about the idea that violence has declined over human history. You know, we still have lots of violence around us, but if you look, if you take a really wide look at human history and the world, you'll see that it's declined rather dramatically. You know, your chances of being killed violently are much less now than they were uh, thousands and, and uh, even hundreds of years ago. Um, they have gone down quite dramatically. So um, someday I'll read that book, but now you don't need to either because I just told you the whole thing. But no, no, actually you should still read it, it sounds like. Um, I doubt that we're ever going to entirely lose that part of our brain functionality, you know, that our, that our brains will evolve so completely and so beautifully that we won't have that little response that says, you know, oh, there's, there's something bad happening here and I better react and I better be careful and I better put up, uh, you know, some walls and uh, I'm not sure about these folks that are different than I am. And yet, I'm aware that that humans live with the knowledge of so much more diversity than they have at other earlier periods in history. And, you know, I think we're doing, it's a kind of okay. You know, there's, there are some major problems, but it, it is a lot better than thousands of years ago. It is a lot better than hundreds of years ago. And so for me, you know, that gives me hope that, that there will be a continuation that will continue to get better and better. I spoke a number of months ago at West about the idea of faith, about what faith means um, to, to non-believers, to, to liberal religious folks, and, um, and what it means to me. And one of the things I talked about was the, the idea that one of the most important kind of faith statements I have is the faith that the, the arc of the universe bends toward justice, right? That, that someday, you know, the world will be peaceful and just and beautiful and right. And I don't necessarily think that that's true, that that will really happen, but I find it very important to live as though it's possible, to live with that faith statement. And so for me, that's what comes up thinking about that question. You know, I don't know that the answer to the question about our evolution is, oh yes, you know, we'll definitely get there and it'll take this amount of time. But I want to believe that it's possible and I certainly want to keep working to make it more and more possible. And I see reasons in history taking a long view to think that we can make it more and more possible over time. So then there are two more really meta questions that I want to just touch on. One of them is about ethical culture, asking why is it so hard for ethical culture to have absolutes? 
I think this question came actually out of um, conversation about the question platform, about how much we like to ask questions and have multiple choice answers to the questions, and uh, definitely probably not agree on the multiple choice answers to those questions. You know, why is it hard for us to have absolutes? It, it ties into me with that charge that's sometimes leveled against liberals in general, that, um, that they sort of sink to moral relativism. You know, everything's okay if you just, that's fine, you just don't understand the context. And and I actually, I, I really have a soft spot for moral relativism, um, or at any rate, for cultural context around ethics and around morality. You know, things are really different in different cultures. Rights are really different. Um, I think that the charge comes, um, and, the, and the challenge in the charge comes more from our insistence on human experience, something else that I'm pretty fond of. Um, but when it veers from kind of, uh, from individuality, from our unique self, our uniqueness, to individualism, you know, the sort of cult of the individual, that, that what I think has, you know, is, is the totality of experience for me, and I, and I want everything to kind of fit that. Um, and so that's where I think the idea of cultural context and community really comes in, the, the communitarian ethic, which needs to be part of our conversation just as much as individuality and human experience. That that individuality needs to be tested and tried within community. And I think it's then the community together that is able to provide absolutes within their context, that's able to create some of those, no, here we do not do this. Here, we do not do that. So I think there's a back and forth between absolutism and relativism, that there's some sweet spot in the middle, you know, that acknowledges the individual but tests it in the sort of crucible of community, if you will. And then another one, which I just loved, asking about the importance of duty in an ethical life. It made me laugh because Mary and I have had so many conversations about the word duty, which gets a really bad rap these days. You know, nobody wants to have a duty anymore. Um, it's like an onus or a burden. Or, you know, but um, it may not surprise you, we both kind of like the concept of duty. And in fact, uh, Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture back in the 19th century, wrote an entire book called the religion of duty. So we sort of hope you like duty too, <laughs> because as it, as it turns out, it's really um, at the heart of ethical culture. It comes from Immanuel Kant and Kantian ethics, the concept of duty and its importance. And so the quick answer is, oh, it's very important in an ethical life, duty. I think that um, I think it, it gets a bad rap again because of that individualistic streak in American culture. You know, we don't want anybody to tell us what we have to do. But in fact, it's bonds of duty that tie us to each other. It's our responsibility toward each other that is kind of the deepest part of being in relationship with each other. And so for me, that's really the, the positive piece. It's the way to look at it as what holds us to each other so we're not just kind of drifting off, you know, into space, but instead we're, we're individuals who, who are tied each to the other in a web that goes through the room and out into the city and out through the world um, for me. So it's that, it's that responsibility maybe is a word that will resonate more, but I, I think it's so integral to how we behave that, that we don't just make ethical choices based on kind of what we think, but in relationship with other people. Um, 
And that, to me, is really what duty is about, that, that sense of relationship and accountability to each other. So those were my big questions. And I don't know if the answers were ones that, that you were looking for, but I want to end with a final question, which was my absolute favorite because it has an actual possible one answer. Um, it was a history question. And, um, and, uh, and I'm going to call you out. Is that all right? She's smiling at me. So Sheila Waters sent this question. And so you can tell me right on the spot. This is like instant feedback if I got the answer right. Um, Sheila's question is, which leader of which New York area, it's Jeopardy, of which New York area ethical society taught ethics at Long Island University in Brooklyn? Uh, he was my professor in 7980, and I can't remember his name, although the face is as clear as a bell, right? That's always the way. You see the face just perfectly there. So, so I loved it because there actually might be an answer to this question, <laughs> unlike, you know, <laughs> when we'll stop genocide. Um, there might be an answer. I certainly didn't have the answer, however. So I turned to my colleagues and wrote to the whole leaders listserv, all the other ethical culture leaders in the country. And indeed, a couple of them wrote back. And so I have some options for you, Sheila. <laughs> Here's who we've got. Mel Grupp was the leader of the Queen Society, lived in Brooklyn, and taught at the Ethical Culture School in Manhattan. And he taught a Long Island University adult education program course around that time, but he would have been younger than the person that you specify. Was it Mel Grupp? No. Okay. God, now I hope it's why it's like three, if it's not one of these, I don't know what to do. Algernon Black received an honorary doctorate from Long Island University, but Joe Schumann, who wrote this, doubts that he did any university teaching, and you would have remembered him for sure. Yeah, not, not Algernon Black. I am guessing, but I don't think this is all Joe Schumann, right? I don't think it's far-fetched to assume that Sheldon Ackley may have taught at Long Island University. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. <coughs> That's too bad. He was dean at Gettysburg. Okay. Finally, come on, Sheila. Only Joe Blau comes to mind. Joe Blau. <laughs> right age, lived in New York, long teaching career. Okay, well, that's sad, and possibly I should have checked it with Sheila ahead of time, now that I um, see that my exciting reveal did not get us anywhere. So I, did, I, I, I have written in my notes, so Sheila, did I answer your question? No. No, I did not answer Sheila's question. I will keep searching for you. However, now you all know that all four of those people did indeed teach at Long Island University at one time or another, just not Sheila Waters. And everyone else, if you sent a question in, I think I don't want to know if I answered your question. Hopefully what you heard today reminds you that more important than the answers really are the questions and keep you asking questions of each other and of the community and of yourselves. I found a great quote to end from Eugene Ionesco, which says essentially that, it is not the answer that enlightens, but the question. <laughs>